Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. As you know, the book of Revelation breaks down into three main parts. Part number one is chapter one. It has to do with things which were past. had to do with John's um, vision of the exalted Christ. Part two was chapters two and three, dealing with things that were present for the apostle John. It had to do with his letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, both to encourage them and to correct them. And then part three, which is the longest part of the book by far, chapters four through 22, has to do with things future things prophetic, the consummation of God's kingdom. And the purpose of this section that we find ourselves in is to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And so as we know, that judgment comes after the church has been raptured. Aren't you glad for that? It comes after the church has been taken to heaven and during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, where there are three waves of judgment. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. And we have already covered the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. But before we get to the bull judgments, we find ourselves in the midst of an extended interlude. And these interludes, and here it's chapters 10 through 15, These interludes in Revelation serve as a kind of pause, a pause in the action, a pause in the judgments, to fill in some important information about key players and events. In chapters 12 through 13, the key players were who? It was that unholy trinity. Remember that? It was the story of Satan in Revelation 12. It was the story of the Antichrist in 13, 1 through 10, and then anti-spirit in 13, 11 through 18, and that anti-spirit more commonly known as the false prophet. And during the tribulation, the Antichrist and the false prophet fulfilled two important roles in the story. The Antichrist is a political leader. He has satanic authority to rule. And the false prophet is a religious leader. He has satanic authority to speak. And what does he speak about? Well, he speaks about the Antichrist, persuading people to worship him. And so he's got quite the bag of tricks, if you remember, to accomplish his purpose. Let's just run through them really quick. The false prophet, he performs great signs. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. He incites the creation of an image of the first beast. He animates the image of the first beast. He causes those who do not worship in the image to be slain. He causes all to be marked with the number of the beast. And he controls commerce. Now that's a whole lot of evil, isn't it? A whole lot of evil and a whole lot of power, which leaves us scratching our heads potentially and wondering, with all of that, will anyone be able to remain faithful to God through this portion of the tribulation? And and is God even going to be victorious? Look at all this. Look at all of this darkness. Because at this point in the story, it doesn't feel like God is victorious. And that's where chapter 14 comes in. That's what we started last week. Chapter 14 provides the reassurance, the reassurance that though Satan is real and powerful, as we saw in chapters 12 through 13, God's people and his purposes will ultimately prevail. God is still on the throne. He rules and reigns. And this wonderful reassurance is given to John by means of three 
visions, okay? Reassurance through three visions. First of all, John sees a vision of the followers of Christ in verses 1 through 5. That's what Pastor Mike covered last week. The 144,000 sealed Jews from earlier in the tribulation who ultimately will appear on Mount Zion with the Lamb, reassuring us that God's people will in fact be victorious through the tribulation. And what a great encouragement that is. And also, I appreciate how Pastor Mike last week He brought out of that principles for us about how to live a victorious Christian life today. And I found that extremely, extremely helpful. Well, in today's text, John sees a second vision. It is a vision of three angels. As as we mentioned back, remember we did an Advent series on angels that kind of interrupted our study in Revelation. And we said, hey, Angels have a lot to do with the Advent story. Angels have a lot to do with Revelation. And certainly in this section that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks, angels are a really big deal. So these angels, these three angels, proclaim three important messages. And then after that, we're going to see John sees yet another vision, and it is a vision of the harvest of the earth in verses 14 through 20. And so again, all of these visions are meant to bring us reassurance that light will triumph over darkness. The Holy Trinity will triumph over the unholy Trinity. And so let's dive into this second vision in chapter 14, a vision of three angels who communicate three messages. The message of angel number one is gospel. The message of angel number two is doom. And the message of angel number three is damnation. Today, we're just going to focus on the first one. Verses 6 and 7, the message of the gospel. I was, I was actually, I, I chuckle about it now. I was going to cover all of them today. And uh, as I got into it, well, that really isn't a very good idea. And uh, you know, first and foremost, because this first message from the angel is about the gospel. And we just can't hurry through the gospel. It is far too important to speed through. It deserves some unhurried time for contemplation and for application. And so let me read these two verses, verses 6 and 7 of Revelation chapter 14. The Apostle John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Would you join with me in praying? Father, these are two relatively short verses, but they are profound. And I believe that you have much to say to us through these two verses. And so would you enable us to dial in, to focus, to listen, to hear? God, I pray for your help this morning in preaching. I pray that you would be the speaker and that for all of us, we would hear and we would obey. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so these two verses can be broken into two very simple parts. The first is the proclamation of the gospel in verse 6, and the second is the invitation to the gospel in verse 7. So proclamation followed by invitation. And so let's look at that first part in verse 6. It begins by saying, Then I saw another angel flying directly 
overhead. We might say in that position of high noon so that all people everywhere will be able to see and hear. The truth of the matter is no one on earth will be able to ignore this message from this angel. Kind of reminds me of the Blue Angels, right? They come to the National Cherry Festival um, in Traverse City. That's one of my favorite things about Northern Michigan, actually, is when that happens. Such a unique experience. And so when that happens, you go to Traverse City. And even if you're in Traverse City and you're not interested in the Blue Angels, you can't ignore it, right? It's visible. It's loud. It just gets your attention. And uh, so it is here. So it will be with this first angel in verse 6, with this first message. Everyone will see and hear, every nation and tribe and language and people. And so I want you to kind of get a visual of this. An angel, and we've studied angels and we've looked and reflected on their glory and their power and their majesty, flying back and forth in the sky in such a way that everyone across the globe sees and hears. And I even wonder, I like to daydream a little bit, if those angels in this chapter will even do kind of like some formation flying, like the blue angels. I think that would be, that would be pretty cool. It would be, as, as cool as the blue angels are, imagine real angels, you know, doing this stuff. It would be spectacular. We continue reading in verse 6, and then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. An eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. So what, what is this flying angel doing? He's preaching. He's preaching. His pulpit is the heavens. In Greek, gospel, the word euangelion, which we, from which we get our word evangelism, and it literally means, I just love this. You know, and I know we know it, but when we reflect on it, it's like it literally means good news. Church, we are to be people of good news. Our neighbors are to think of us as people with good news because that is the gospel. We are gospel people. And if you think about it, think about the stark contrast that's taking place here. Chapters 12 and 13, what kind of, what kind of news was that? That was bad news. Satan, Antichrist, anti-spirit, false prophet. And here, in contrast to that bad news, chapter 14, we have good news proclaimed. I imagine the angel declaring John 3.16. Again, imagine this angel, this majestic angel, flying back and forth and declaring, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, no one can ignore it. No one can run away from it. it. Everyone sees and hears. And Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And here's the important truth. Today's passage reminds us of the great lengths, the great lengths, I hope you see it, to which God will go during the tribulation to save lost sinners. Do you get it? I mean, think about it. What have we already seen so far? Well, we will see that he will raise up 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists, right? We saw that earlier. And those 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists leads to a harvest of saved Gentiles so large that no one could count. Remember, there's great revival that takes place during the Great Tribulation. He will also raise up two special messengers. Remember those guys? Moses and Elijah bringing them back to earth, which I still think they got to be grumpy about, right? It's like, you want me to do what? 
to preach in Jerusalem with all kinds of signs and wonders. Again, out in the open for the whole world to see. It talks about the fact that when they are put to death, the whole world sees and the whole world celebrates. But their message is that people would turn from their sins and be saved. And now in today's passage, we see that God will raise up three angels with three messages, the first of which is the pure, undiluted good news of the gospel. All of which reminds us again and again of 1 Timothy 2.4 that God's desire is that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's so much judgment in Revelation, isn't there? And so much wrath. But one of the things that I have seen and I hope that you see as well is don't miss the fact that there is so much grace in Revelation. There is so much grace, so much opportunity that God gives to lost sinners to be saved. As he, he demonstrates, I can only call it supernatural patience toward his rebellious creation. But, but listen carefully here. This is important. Today's message and today's point in the story marks the end of God's patience. This is kind of an, as good as good news as the gospel is, this point in Revelation is kind of an ominous, sobering point in the Revelation story because it is the last call. It is the last call for the gospel train. It is one final plea for lost sinners to repent and be, get, be forgiven because just over the horizon in chapter 16, is that final wave of judgment, the, the seven bulls of God's wrath. And so God pulls out all the stops. He sends angels to fly back and forth and to preach the gospel so everyone will see, everyone will hear the message to warn people of God's coming wrath and judgment. The Apostle Paul uses an interesting adjective to describe the gospel in verse 6. Did you see? What does he call the gospel? The eternal gospel. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. Um, that, does, that term deserves some attention, I think, and it might cause us to ask the question, are there different gospels? Eternal gospel, um, if we survey the scriptures, we might actually think that there are different gospels. Um, we have the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of peace, the glorious gospel, and here, the eternal gospel. So what are we to make of all of that? Are these all different gospels? And of course, the answer to that is emphatically no. Rather, all of these adjectives, all of these adjectives describe different facets of the one and only gospel message. And in this case, the adjective used by the Apostle John is eternal. It's an eternal gospel. It speaks to the fact that the gospel is unchanging. It's unchanging. It's enduring. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be subtracted from it. You cannot improve upon the eternal gospel. There is one gospel. And the reason for that is number two, the second implication, I believe, of the eternal gospel. It is the only key, the only key that opens the door to eternal life. So you can try all the other keys you want. You can try other world religions. You can try other philosophies. You can try all kinds of self-help. You can try hard to be a better person, but none of these keys 
will open the door to eternal life. Only the eternal gospel, as communicated in the Scriptures, can do that. And here in Revelation 14, that is what is being proclaimed by the angel that flies around the globe. Now, the fact that the gospel is eternal, that it is unchanging and enduring, it's the only key that opens the door to eternal life, that is why the Apostle Paul gets so fired up in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to what he says. He's not very nice. Did you know that? But niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit, okay? Um, but this is what he says. He says, I am astonished, you Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Interesting application for us today in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, what does Paul say about that person? Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, in case you didn't hear it the first time, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's strong language by the Apostle Paul, and rightfully so, because the gospel is the unchanging, enduring key which alone opens the door to eternal life. And when you mess with it, oh, there are severe, severe consequences as a result. Well, as we have seen, God loves the world so much that even during the tribulation, he will raise up 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists. He'll raise up two messengers, two special prophets, Moses and Elijah, and he will raise up three angels, the first of which preaches the eternal gospel which ultimately fulfills that prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24, 14. We keep referring back to it because, again, this was a big light bulb moment, I think, for me. 24, 14, in this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus is talking about the context of the tribulation, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's what we see with this angel, right? As a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. So, that is the proclamation of the gospel by this first messenger angel in verse 6. Let's talk about the invitation to the gospel in verse 7. I've actually heard it said that the gospel has actually not been presented until it brings the listener to a point of decision. And this angel doesn't just speak the truth, he calls people to the truth to a point of having to make a decision in verse 7 where he says... He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, in a general sense, why would the angel emphasize fearing God, giving him glory and worshiping him? Think about this in context. Think about chapters 12 and 13, particularly the Antichrist and the false prophet. Who are the people of that day in John's time period, as he writes, or in the tribulation, who are the people of that day fearing? The Antichrist, right? To whom are they giving glory? The Antichrist. And who are they worshiping, especially as the, uh, the false prophet raises up this, this animated image? People are worshiping the Antichrist. And so here's where the gospel response gets painfully real in the tribulation. People will have to choose, won't they? 
People will have to choose to whom they will give glory, who they will fear, who they will worship. And so angel number one puts the gospel in as simple terms as possible. You worship God and be saved eternally, or you worship the beast, the Antichrist, and you will be judged. Very simple, okay? It's black and white. Acknowledging the harsh reality that we encountered in chapter 13, that failure to worship the Antichrist will likely lead to what? Likely lead to death. Um, Now, it could be a quick death by martyrdom, or it could be a very slow death because you are not able to do commerce. You're not able to work. You're not able to buy food. You're not able to do and to acquire the basic necessities of life. Death on earth, but eternal life in heaven. And church, can I just say this? Let me challenge you for a moment. Can I just say that while the consequences for us today, following Jesus in our context, it's not so extreme, is it? The consequences, all right? We don't have to probably worry about death for following Jesus today. But the choice is to be every bit as decisive. Does that make sense? All right. It is to be as black and white as the choice is for them. The consequences aren't as extreme, but the choice is to be as decisive, light or darkness, in or out. There is no fence riding. There is no middle ground. And so we could look at them and say, well, that's a really black and white choice that they're going to have to make. It is every bit as black and white today. It is every bit as decisive today. Have you made that decisive decision because this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let's take a closer look at each of the three responses that are mandated by the angel in verse 7. The first thing the angel says to the listeners who are hearing the gospel, he says with a loud voice, fear God. Fear God. Now, what does it mean to fear God? I don't think we talk about this nearly enough. I think it's hugely important. After all, the book of Proverbs says what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we ought to talk about what the fear of the Lord means and how significant it is. And truth be known, we probably even want to shy away from talking about this whole idea of fearing God because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to be afraid of anything, right? And so I've heard some people try to define fearing God in terms of um, respect. It means to respect God or to have reverence for him. And on one hand, those are certainly elements of the fear of the Lord, but I don't think they go nearly, nearly, nearly far enough. And I think the prophet Isaiah would agree, right? Because listen to his experience when he entered into the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Does that sound like... I respect God. Does that that sound like respect? No, that sounds like something much, much more intense, something much, much greater. I think the word that I would use to describe what it means to fear the Lord is awe. It's awe. Dictionary defines awe as an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder, That is inspired by authority. I like that part of the definition of fearing the Lord. It's inspired by authority or by the sacred or sublime. Awe. To fear God is to 
have awe for him. And this is probably a terrible, terrible illustration, but it's the one that came to me, kind of like that tornado that you just can't take your eyes off of. You know, you ever seen those people on, on the news, on the Weather Channel, those shows, and they're like, they're like filming the tornado and it's coming right for them and they should be in the basement, but they just can't take their eyes off of it? I, I would probably be one of those people. Um, but it just leaves them with slack-jawed amazement of its power and its might. On one hand, they're terrified. On the other hand, they just can't get enough. That goes way beyond respect and reverence. This is awe-inspired fear in a good way. You know, usually we think of fear as a negative. I think when it comes to fearing the Lord, as we saw with Isaiah, it's a positive because it helps us to put Him, God, in His rightful place and us in our very low place in comparison to Him. So it's a healthy thing to have an actual awe-inspired terror when it comes to who God is because that's, he's so much bigger, so much greater. And I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in the fact that I serve a God who's so big that he's worthy of my awe and even my fear. If you'd like to explore more about what it means to truly be in awe of God, to fear him appropriately, recommend to you a book to you. Um, actually, David Miller um, recommended this to me back in the day. It's called Awe by Paul David Tripp. Recommend it? Awesome book. Awesome book. I'm just a little blurb from it. Humans are hardwired for awe. Our hearts are always captured by something. That's how God made us. But sin threatens to distract us from the glory of our Creator. All too often we stand in awe of everything but God. Uncovering the lies we believe about all the earthly things that promise us peace, life, and contentment Paul Tripp redirects our gaze to God's awe-inducing glory, showing us such a vision has the potential to impact our every thought, word, and deed. And if we were to accurately able to see God for who he is the way Isaiah was, do you feel like after Isaiah's encounter with God, he was different after that? Yeah, so it is to be with us. So the bottom line is we desperately need to rediscover the awesomeness and awfulness of our God. And when we do, we will fear him appropriately. So that's the first message of the angel for the response is fear God. Next, in verse 7, the angel mandates to the listener of the gospel message, give him glory. Give him glory, which raises the question, all right, what does that mean? What does it mean to give God glory? We talk a lot about, we use terms like, oh, give glory to God. What does that mean, really? At the end of the day, it's it's tightly connected with fearing God because we will glorify that which we are awed by, right? We will glorify that which we are awed by. And listen to 1 Chronicles 16.28. I think this is helpful in understanding what it means to give God glory. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, can we give God, as it says in the first part of that, can we give God strength? No, God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We can't give him strength. But what can we do? We can credit him with being omnipotent. We can declare his omnipotence. We can um, tell the world about his omnipotence. That word ascribe, I believe, means give him the credit he deserves. 
Give God the credit he deserves, which is, now when you think about this, how much credit does God deserve? It's an infinitely tall task, right? It's unending. We'll never come to the end of glorifying God, but that's a good thing because that's why we were created. And so when we, in an unending fashion, ascribe to God, give him the glory that he's due, we're fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. You know what that makes us? Happy. Makes us happy. Wow, that's, that's the key to happiness? Yeah, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all this other stuff will be added to you as well. When we put God first, when we ascribe to him in an unending fashion, the glory that is due him, guess what? We are happy people because he's in his rightful place. We're in our rightful place. We're in proper alignment. Um, angst comes to our lives when we're out of proper alignment with God. This aligns us properly. Into the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? For thine is the kingdom, thine is the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That's ascribing to God what is rightfully his and who he is, giving him the credit he deserves. Next, lastly, the angel mandates that the listeners of this gospel message worship, worship him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God? The Greek word there is proskuneo. It's really visual. It means to do homage by kissing the hand, bowing in adoration. Kind of like, you know, we, we watch movies where there's like somebody comes in a throne room before a king or a queen, and how do they act? They, they do this. They do this. They actually do this. They, they kiss the hand, or they bow down. They, they pay homage. Interestingly, I spent Thursday and Friday at a Lutheran monastery. Did you know that? St. Augustine's house down uh, near Oxford, Michigan. I was there with a group. Really exciting. Now, the sad part of this is, did you know that our state, American Baptist Churches of Michigan, we have not planted a brand new church in 27 years. That's terrible news. All right, that's tragic. Now, the, the, the really exciting part is I'm a, a part of uh, six or seven pastors who are gathering together to strategize how we can change that. And uh, new days ahead, you know, in terms of church planting for our state and our denomination, something I'm very passionate about. But so um, one of the guys recommended that we meet here and spend the night there with, um, there are residents there who, what they do is they, they go about their business throughout the day, their, their holy exercises, they, they join together seven times a day to pray. And so when these uh, prayer times would come, we would join in the chapel with them. And um, let me just say, their worship doesn't look like our worship, okay? It was, it was a little different. With the, the, the music certainly was different. And, but one of the elements about their time of prayers together, there was this element of, of bowing. And I, it, it, you, when you're not used to that, it makes you uncomfortable, but you're like, well, why does that make me uncomfortable? That's, that's literally what worship is all about. It's, it's, it's that bowing. Now, we would say, well, you know, Chad, I bow in the heart. You know, and I get that. I, I get that. But you know what? I believe if we're truly bowing in the heart, we're not going to have any trouble bowing physically, you know, before God. You know, we, we like to rationalize a lot of our lack of action by saying, well, it's, it's inward. It's internal. But Bottom line, their liturgy involves some bowing. It seemed foreign to me, but again, it really shouldn't because it's the act, the, the true essence of what worship is, bowing the heart and the body in adoration before our God. It is the posture of our lives which puts God in his rightfully elevated place and us in our rightfully subservient place. We are made to be bowers, to be worshipers. 
And so this gospel-proclaiming angel calls the listeners to fear God, to give Him glory, and to worship Him. Now, there is a last phrase in verse 7, hugely important to the book of Revelation. It says, "...who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water." All right, it really highlights the fact that God is the creator God. Why is that so important to the book of Revelation? Why does it frequently come back to the fact that God is the creator? Because lest we begin to question God's right to bring judgment on the earth, we're reminded that he is, in fact, the creator of the earth. And therefore, it is perfectly within his right to act. The one who started it, has every right to end it. Is it any wonder then that evolution is such a passionately held position in our culture? Because if you attack creation, you attack everything, right? If you remove the creator, you remove the judge. If you remove the judge, you remove accountability. And at that point, human beings become their own law and their own God And is that not the environment in which we live today? And so it's no surprise that the book of Revelation consistently comes back to proclaiming God as the creator because that reinforces the fact that it is his right to judge. Well, as we bring things to a conclusion today, let me draw your attention back to the beginning of verse 7. Okay, back to the very first part of that verse. He said with a loud voice, we kind of glossed over that, but it's important The angel did this. He didn't mumble it. He didn't whisper it. He wasn't ashamed of it. He wasn't afraid of offending anybody by what he was saying. He declared it with a loud voice. What is the significance of that loud voice? Number one, it tells us that what the angel was saying is very, very important. The gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to save lost sinners, that whoever believes on the name of the Lord will be saved. Nothing more important than that message. So he said it with a loud voice. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, as he was talking about the gospel, for I delivered to you as of, of secondary importance. What does it say? First importance. First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the angel proclaiming in a loud voice, it tells us that this message is of great importance, but also it's urgent. It's urgent. As I said earlier, this is the last gospel call in the tribulation in the book of Revelation. One final plea for lost sinners to repent. And um, I think this leads us to consider how urgently are we treating the gospel this morning. Um, You know, we can look at Revelation and we have some sense of a timeline of how these things play out. And so we can see all the bold judgments are coming. So yeah, we know that time is short. Do we even know how short our time is here today? We don't. We don't. And so there is perhaps an even greater urgency for us today because we don't know the timing. So let me ask you three simple questions this morning. Does your life and speech communicate that the gospel is important and urgent? Does your life and speech communicate that the gospel is important 
and urgent. I put both life and speech in there because another temptation we can sometimes have, you know, Chad, I just show people. I just live the gospel. I don't, I'm, I don't need to talk about it. Um, and, and you know what? That is just not accurate. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed, to be shared. And so while absolutely your life should be consistent with and point people to Jesus Christ and to the gospel. The gospel is a message to be shared. Can you imagine standing before Jesus or the apostles and just saying, you know, it's not really important that I speak the gospel. I just live it. And they would, they would give a lot of grace, but at the end of the day, they would also rebuke and say that is just not so. Number two, second question, what is one thing you need to do this week? Not, not next week, not a month from now. We may not be here next week or a month from now. What is one thing you need to do this week in life and speech to communicate that the gospel is important and urgent? If you were to take one step, one action step in living this out, what would it be? And if you're struggling with this, let, let, let me give you a, um, a hint or a help with the third question I want to ask you today. Who are your three? And what I mean by that is simply this. Three people that God would lay on your heart to write down on a piece of paper. And I think the writing down on a piece of paper is important. You put it pen to paper, you write it down, that you will pray for those three daily. That the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would provide divine appointments for you to share, and that when those appointments come, you would walk through that open door, inviting them to be saved, just like the angel did. You see, um, we live in a time period, God's plan today is not to send an angel to skywrite in the heavens. That is not his plan for evangelism today. What is his plan? It's you and me, his church. And it is my prayer that this question of who are your three would just become part of the culture here at First Baptist Church. That is, we're walking through the hallway. Um, you, you could grab me and say, Chad, who are your three? And I'd say, hey, here's my three. Let's stop right here and pray for them. And I could do the same for you. I could grab you by the arm and say, hey, who are your three? Let's stop right here and pray for them. And that that would even be the organizing uh, the organizing principle for when we do get together, when we do pray. That, and, and can you imagine... If an entire congregation did this daily, lifting these up, and we acted in obedience as the Holy Spirit led us, um, Bob Matthews would get really mad because he'd have to fill this tub up every single week. And he would just be like, another baptism? Really? We're going to do this again? Yep, every week, Bob. Every week. There's going to be water in that tub because we prayed and we shared, and God was faithful, and God is the one who produced the harvest. So who are your three? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and um, we are here today because there was the day that it got proclaimed to us, and we responded. And um, God, we, we probably, each one of us in some way could repent and say, you know what, I'm not sure that my words or my actions really treat it with the importance and the urgency that it really deserves. May we as a church declare it with a loud voice, not mumbling, not being concerned about being offensive to people. Because you know what, at the end of the day, there is nothing more offensive to people than letting them go to hell. And so God, would you wake us up? Would you make us evangelists? Um, I know for some like me, I tend to be an introvert, and I can make all kinds of excuses why this just isn't my thing. God, it's all of our things. 
It's all of our things because you reached us first and we have a message to share with others. Make us fruitful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.